todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. My guest today is Steve Rosen. This is part two of two. Steve is a music journalist whose career spans 50 years, and he was the West Coast correspondent for Guitar World magazine, also the author of several books, including ones on Randy Rhodes' Prince Black Sabbath, and the book we'll be talking about today, Tone Chaser. It's an incredible intimate story by Steve about Ed Van Halen's life as seen through the prism of their 26-year professional relationship and personal friendship. This is part two of two, so let's get to it. We talked a little bit about sort of the, the alchemy and the friendship and the musicianship of Van Halen as a band early on. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a Van Hagar <laughs> fan at all. I love the early Van Halen and their final album. Um, I thought really brought everything full circle. Um, but the guys didn't always uh, get along very well, especially Edward and Dave. So can you talk a little bit about the reconciliation that finally happened towards the end of Ed's life and how that final album came together. My friendship with Edward ends in 2003. So I didn't really follow Van Halen. Um, Edward's life was no longer part of mine. And maybe that was a selfish thing. I think it was more part of, um, you know, trying to, you know, not think about the friendship and, and that. So I don't really know a lot about that specifically. I can tell you about Edward that he was um, forgiving of a lot of sins from other people. I mean, I was, I, I could not believe that he would ever have worked with Dave again. Um, and again, if you read the book, some of the things he said about Dave, 
Um, uh, I thought, how, how do you, how does he do that? Um, you know, um, but I think with Ed, you know, the, the music was more important and Ed, Ed wanted to make music again. And, uh, you know, they did come out with that record and, um, maybe that record is some Van Halen fan favorite record. I, I, I didn't think, uh, I, I didn't think it was very good. Um, you, you know, I mean, there, there were moments, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I was around Ed when he was creating all those amazing records. And I just, I just didn't think that record was was that good. Um, you know, Edward was would also reconcile with Ted Templeman, and Ed would tell me things, you know, about his relationship with Ted. Um, I thought, well, how do you work with Ted again? Edward, uh, Ted was obviously integral to what Van Halen did, and and mm-hmm. Ed you know, felt he needed them there. And fair enough. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Ted as a, um, you know, an amazing producer or, or very talented guy. I'm just saying, you know, personality wise, you know, he, uh, um, I think Ted, you know, may have said some things to Ed and, you know, Ed, Ed didn't, uh, didn't care about, you know, some of the things he said. Um, so I really don't know how that reconciliation came about. I'm glad you it know. did. I mean, I think it's kind of a nice way to say goodbye to Van Halen, the band, with Dave back on lead vocals. Um, now, when it comes to current music, yeah. popular new music, since you are the expert on guitarist, um, I feel like, you know, different trends come and go and wax and wane, but it seems like the elaborate extended guitar solos of the 70s, especially, I feel like that was the heyday, and they kind of went away when grunge came in they've sort of gone out of style, but what do you think? No, I absolutely agree. Um, guitar has definitely been revamped. It becomes more of a, uh, a band instrument, an accompaniment uh, instrument. Um, you know, it's funny. I- I've been uh, just cruising around YouTube, which I honestly rarely do, and just typing in things like um, guitar podcasts. I guess YouTube channels, Rick Beato is one who kind of goes back and says, why is this song great? And he's very guitar centric, but I feel like that's more of a kind of just a retro thing. It's not, nobody's really creating new guitar sounds anymore unless they're done by a AI or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. No, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I guess, I guess what I, what I see is I see all of these, really i mean amazing guitar players you, you you know i think the internet has been an incredible boon and, and and a curse you know for musicians um one it allows any musician uh to now put up their music which is a good thing the bad thing is now anybody who picks up a guitar thinks she's a songwriter and now instead of you know 10,000 great bands there are 3,000 million bad bands, you know, and <laughs> yeah. a- anyway, but, but, you know, there's like all these amazing guitar players out there. And I, I just wonder, well, what is it that they're going to be able to do with that art? I mean, guys who can, they play fast and they play clean and, and you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do agree with you. Um, yeah. The day of, of the guitar hero, uh, the way we knew them is definitely gone. Look, there's still those kinds of, players around um you know Joe Satriani and um, I mean well, yeah, they're still are- here but I don't know if they're really um 
I think the guitar was the lead guitar was the feature in a lot of bands coming up, especially in the seventies and and maybe some of the the hair bands in the eighties, uh, a guitar solo. But then maybe that sort of is also what um, poisoned the well because hair bands were so um, over the top and out there that it almost kind of became a parody of the of the guitar solo. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, back in the day, it was Joe Perry and um, yeah. I mean, we all had the... Jimmy Page, we had Eric Clapton, we had Jeff Beck, we had Richie Blackmore, we had Edward Van Halen. I mean, they were yeah. they were the stars of their bands. The guitarist was the yeah, guy. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You're right. You're right. Yeah, and I, now I guess it's uh, yeah. God, was so much stuff being done digitally. I mean. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, I, I can't remember what channel it, it was on on YouTube where an Ed Van Halen guitar solo was corrected with you know, note correctors. And oh, my God. Yeah, it just like, it leached all of the soul and the panache out of it. And it just oh my made God. it that, musically perfect. Like a, but, yeah, it was crazy. Wow. That's like a, that's like somebody uh, correcting the grammar and east of eden or something <laughs> right well i'm um, sure an ai would do that in about four seconds flat if you fed those words into uh uh you know chatbot or something oh, improve wow. this yeah 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 you know I'm, I'm sorry stacy and you know your point about yeah the guitar becoming uh yeah evolving into this other thing not the lead instrument not the not the main focus of the band anymore i mean my, my interest really in in in, in rock music, even when I was still writing. Uh, I mean, look, I still love to meet, um, you know, these guitar players and these other bands, you know, these other songwriters. But yeah, at, at a point in time, it was like, I, I, I just don't have a desire to, to write about music anymore. And, and I really stopped writing about probably about four years ago, but it had, it had uh, started way before that. I mean, I was doing a lot of interviews with, um, I mean, a lot of these, you know, hardcore metal bands. Um, and there were some interesting guitar players in there, but but that they were not the focus. It was probably the stringer doing the growling thing, or it was just the overall look or the sound of the band, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my interest waned because musically these bands, I, I really, I, I couldn't listen to them, you know, apart from, you know, saying, oh, the guitar player is good. But, you know, it's in the context of this music that I can't listen to because of you know, for me, there were no melodies and no, you know, intelligible yeah. lyrics or anything. But yeah, yeah so it's all changed. But thankfully, we have this music still with us to listen to, and younger people can discover it. And I feel like so many icons have read and enjoyed Tone Chaser, and you have new readers who are maybe being introduced to Edward Van Halen for the first time. And I, I really enjoy seeing the endorsements on your social media outlets. Um, but I'm wondering what are some of the most surprising or maybe unexpected bits of feedback that you've gotten from people who've read Tone Chaser? Well, actually a, a couple of them have come from, you know, some of these famous guitar players. I sell the book on reverb. And for those who don't know, reverb is where you would go if you're going to buy a drum set, if you're going to buy, a, you know, a guitar, an amp. It's, it's mainly, you know, musical gear. instruments. Yeah. Um, right. Unlike eBay, that's which is, you know, you can go buy uh, everything on eBay. Uh -huh. um, so uh, I see this 
order come through for the book, you know, and and, and the, the name is Chris Shiflet. I'm going, well, I know a Chris Shiflet that's in the Foo Fighters, but, you know, but that can't be him, you know. Anyway, I had reached out to him. And I go, Chris, is this you from the Foo Fighters? Anyway, he wrote back, goes, yeah, man, this is me. I, I want to read your book. So, I mean, even though it's not a comment, the fact that he would order the book, because, I mean, I would have happily sent him a copy. To me, that's, <laughs> you know, that that feels pretty good, uh, you know. And, Definitely. and I just got another one from, um, I don't know if you know the author, uh, Chuck Klosterman. I um, sure do. I have two of his books right here on my shelf. Oh, my God. You know, uh, he is, oh, my God. He is just an amazing writer. So anyway, I wrote the publishing company. Um, just say, hey, you know, I wrote this book. Could you get it to Chuck? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I know he's a big rock guy. And uh, literally five minutes later, he had emailed me. You know, he'd reached out and go, yeah, man, I, you know, I've been looking for your book. I want to read your book. So anyway, I sent him a book. That felt pretty great. Um, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. And the word of mouth, even if you give books away to certain influential people, when they get the word out, it helps spread it to other people who would like yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at it. Joe Satriani was one of the first people. It's that same thing happened with Joe. There's a guy on, uh, I, I sell a book on Amazon. Sorry about the plug. And I see this guy, Joseph Satriani. And I go, oh, my God. There can't be <laughs> it's got to be him. You know, so I go, Joe, is this, I write back, Joe, is this you? He goes, yeah, man, it's me. I go, Joe, I was going to send your book. Let me refund your money. He goes, no, do not refund my money. I want to pay for the book. And that's what kind of a guy he was. You know, I've, I've been to Joe many times over the years. He put together like a little 15 second video. Uh -huh. You know, oh, hey, man, check out the book. You know, maybe you've seen it. I, I was like, my God, that, that just blows me away. Look, it's one, one thing for me to sit down and interview Joe Satriani for a guitar magazine. It's something entirely different for him to, you know, put his name out there and, and say, hey, this book is good. Go go get it, you know. So um, that being said, I think I've only had one kind of semi-negative response. I don't even know if the person read the book. And all they said was, who the F is this Rosen? And, how, you know, how can he write about Eddie Van Halen? Oh, you know? wow. Clearly they didn't read the book then. Exactly. And and one of the guys, you know, responds, um, hey, man, you know, Rosen's known Ed for, you know, all this time. And he wrote this book. You don't know what you're talking about, you know. But everybody else, the response has been, thank you for writing the book. You know, I learned so much about Edward I didn't know. And that, to me, was really why I wrote the book. I wanted you to walk away knowing just a little bit more than you did before you started the book. Um, and for people to, you know, I touched on earlier, to understand why those other more personal moments were in there. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to, the last thing I was trying to do was to embarrass anybody, you know, any family members, fame anybody, much less myself. I mean, hey, I'm right there drinking and doing drugs right along with you. Ed. Uh -huh. um, right. You know, I could have I could have left myself out of that. You know, um, I, I, I couldn't do that. But I, I'm just so incredibly pleased that people understood the intent of the book. You know, I mean, I mean, I wish I could think specifically of some of these things people have said. You know, some people said they laugh when they cry. And I thought, oh, well, that's great. I wanted you to laugh and cry when you were reading it. And wow, I didn't know that Edward was like that. And it's been pretty amazing. Um, I, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more, uh, to be honest with you. Um, when you sit down to write a book, 
you want the book to be successful. You know, you're hoping you can sell some copies, but you don't sit down and write a book, think you're going to make money. And it, 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 that was the last thing on my mind. Look, I was hoping the book would sell. I was hoping, you know, the 14 months, you know, I'd be compensated in some way. But I mean, really, it was it was never, ever about the money. Well, your first printing sold out though, right? So you're already... It, it did. And yeah, honest, that's, that's exciting. I, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, when that last book went, I thought, oh my God, you know, I, I hadn't even prepared for a second printing. I was hoping there would be a second printing. And there was a lapse of like three or four months. I thought, oh my God, you know, anybody who might've been interested, they're gone away. They, you know, what's Rose been doing? I mean, you know, there's no more books. So yeah, and and now I'm well on the way through the second printing. It's just unbelievable, um, you know. And and books have gone to you know the far flung reaches of the globe. And I sold a couple of books in China, and I think there was one in Singapore, a couple in Japan. Oh wow! Yeah, a lot in Australia, a lot in Canada, uh, you know, France and Germany and the Netherlands and Italy, Spain. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I I, I love seeing that stuff, you know. The idea that you're sitting on somebody's, you know, coffee table or somebody's shelf and I know Japan, to me, that's like, that, that's unbelievable. Well, it's well-deserved. You put so much of your time, heart, and soul into the book. So that's a dream come true. But I have to segue to my standard closing question now. Okay. Uh, Steve, what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? Oh my God! Well, the Joe Cocker thing that ranks about number. That's four. a bad one. Oh my God! I have several nightmares. Probably the biggest one, uh, and this was really a nightmare. 1977, in fact, the same year that I would meet Edward, which was actually a, a, a pretty good year, notwithstanding this freaking nightmare. I, I was um, in the thick of writing for a guitar player. I'd written a lot of covers for them. I wanted to try to go after Jimmy Page. Uh, Jimmy notoriously did very few interviews. Um, Zeppelin, uh, as a whole, hated the press. I thought, I'm going to keep after them. I sent letters, made phone calls back to um, the publicist in New York, um, Janine Safer and um, Abe Hawk. I remember the names very well. Look, man, I've, I've got this cover sitting there waiting for Jimmy Page. Can we set something up? Well, you know, they never do interviews and blah, blah, blah. And I kept after them. Um, actually, I think this goes back to 76. I think I, I literally restocked them for a year. And they said, look, uh, you know, um, uh, they've agreed. Uh, you can go out uh, and hang out, you know, for some of the dates. I knew everything about Jimmy Page. I, I, you know, I knew every note on every Zeppelin record. I knew, you know, all his session work. I I knew a lot about him. And I, I said to myself, I knew it at the time. I said, Jimmy Page is not going to do many, if any, guitar interviews like this one. I wanted, I wanted it to be the definitive guitar interview with Jimmy Page. And I knew how important it was. And I felt like I had like this obligation to, to Jimmy Page fans. I, I had to get this right. So I had, I mean, there must have been like 20 pages of typewritten questions, you know. So I fly out to Chicago, um, and this this is the brainchild of Peter Grant, the manager. 
So Zeppelin, what they would do is they would um, find a, a center, a base of operations, find a hotel, and then they would book gigs that were an airplane ride away. Oh, okay. Um, right. So they had they had a private plane, Caesar's Chariot, which was uh, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. It was their private plane that Zeppelin had fitted out for themselves. So there were no seats as we know them on an airplane, but they were like a little more like lounge areas that you would sit in. Then in the back were literally private bedrooms for the guys. John Paul Jones had an organ in his bedroom. Wow, I mean, that's crazy. They had a bar. It, they they had food. It, it was insane. So um, so I'm there. Um, they tell me, they give me a list of things that I cannot do. N- do not look at, at John Bonham. Don't talk to anybody unless they talk to you. Don't wander outside this. I mean, literally, man. It was like, oh my gosh. It, was like wow. yeah, it was a DMZ. So they said, do not leave your hotel room because we may call you at any time to interview Jim. For three days, I sat in my hotel room, afraid to leave, uh, for fear that th- the call was going to come. Hey, Jimmy, we'll talk to you now. I yeah, think I left cell phone. once. <laughs> What's that? Pre-cell phone. You couldn't exactly. go. You had to be kind of tied to the phone back then. Exactly. Because I, I knew the second I left, the phone was going to ring, right? I mean, that's how life works. I think I, think I left once. Um, I just wanted to walk outside and get some fresh air. So I think I went to a... Colonel Sanders and got some Winkles donuts and hurried back, you know, <laughs> but that was it. So the phone rings. I, I'm sitting there for three days. Jimmy will talk to you now. A bouncer comes and gets me at my hotel door. And I mean a big bouncer. I mean a huge bouncer. So we're walking along and we go up a couple of flights. And of course, they're in suites, you know, I mean, my room was very nice, but uh, Jimmy Page is in a suit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I walked in. First thing I noticed is that there's this huge hole in the wall. I mean, like the plaster is on the carpet. And I look and I see the phone is ripped out of the wall. Um, and I'm looking at it, you know, and I, I'm trying not to say anything. And Jimmy comes over, you know, the bouncer introduces us. And I say hello. And, um, you know, the first thing he says, he says, oh, that, that fucking phone, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you, you know, you leave it on, you know, the hook and the people call you, you take it off and it's a dial tone. So what else is there left to do? You know, so he had ripped out the phone and you're throwing it through the wall. Oh, okay. This is a good place to start. So we, we <laughs> sit down on the bed. For some reason, we didn't sit near the table on the edge of the bed. I was using, which I used for many, many years, literally a, a $3 cassette player and a $2 Radio Shack microphone. I mean, who thought that 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 you were going to want to listen to the interviews later? I was only recording it so I could transcribe and write a story. So anyway, so we're talking, and he talks about it. He doesn't talk very much. And on top of, you know, talking a little above a whisper, he's got a pretty thick... Um, uh, English accent, you know, so I'm trying to concentrate and listen to him, you know, and I'm holding the microphone out and my arm is getting sore. Uh, we talk and it was good. At one point, I could not believe it. He said, he said, you know what? He goes, this really is an important conversation. We're going to do this right. And I thought to myself, 
oh my God, this is going to be the greatest interview with Jimmy Page that there ever was. I really believe it because he understood how important it was. Right? In 1977, there are no other places to, to know what kind of guitar strings Jimmy Page used other than guitar player and maybe there was a, a, an English magazine or two. So he understood the importance. So we go and we talk and it's, it's, a, it's a good part one. I had about another, you know, 18 pages, but as a start, it was great. Previously, I'm sorry, I had interviewed John Paul Jones. Um, okay. I think it maybe happened the day before. Um, I went to his room and he was amazing. I mean, we talked, I think, for two hours. He, he got it. He, he talked about everything and all the sessions and playing keyboards, how much he loved Zeppelin. You know, talk all about his faces. I mean, it was an amazing conversation. I had brought the eight of the guys in the band. Guitar player had put together this little comp compilation of a lot of like the best stories from guitar player. On the cover was my Jeff Beck story, which is the first story I'd ever written for guitar player, which became my first cover story. They put, excuse me, they put this story on the cover. So I knew that Jimmy and Jeff knew each other from Yardbirds. They had hung out. I knew that um, uh, John Paul Jones knew Jeff. I thought it'd be like a peace offering. I'm yeah. going to give, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy uh, and John Paul Jones copies of this. I think I may have given one to, to, to Robert. I don't remember. So I do these interviews. So I do the interview with John Paul Jones. Jones. I do the interview with, with Jimmy. We're on the Starship, which is what they dubbed it. And we're coming back or we're flying to a gig. I don't, I, don't, I can't remember. Um, um, uh, and they said, oh, you can talk to Jimmy on the plane, which was kind of horrendous. You know yeah, how it is on a plane. It's like, you know, all this white noise, you know. And on top of that, again, he's talking so softly. Now I've got the white noise to contend with. So I'm sitting there. And and again, you're like in these little lounge areas where they're like the chairs can they're actually like movable on on a on a post. And my my back is sort of like to the to the front of the plane. So I'm sitting there and somebody kind of taps on my shoulder. Um and it wasn't a gentle gentle tap. And I turn around and it's John Paul Jones with his bouncers. They each have their own bouncers. And uh, I'm, I'm going, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not knowing what he wants to do. Maybe he wants to say hello or, you know. So I kind of stand up and say, hey, man, how you doing, you know? Can I cuss on this, Stacey? Yes. So he says, Rosen, you fucking asshole. And I think he's joking. I think he's just goofing because that's all. My, that's the only thing my mind can, can assemble here. And he goes, you fucking asshole, I'm going to fucking kill you. And now I'm thinking, maybe he's not joking. What could he possibly be talking about? Because we had such an extraordinary conversation. And then I look, in one hand, he's got the issue, this compilation rolled up in his hand, and then it hits me. I remember that my opening paragraph, and literally, well, it is the first paragraph I ever wrote for Guitar Player Magazine, as an introduction to my Jeff Beck story, I wrote of the three great English guitar players, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page. You know, I said something like Eric Clapton has, you know, turned into like a 
country hillbilly, you know, I, I was never a fan of popping stuff after Cream or Blind Faith, to be honest with you. So I kind of bashed Eric. And I said, and Jimmy Page, who kind of ripped off Jeff Beck's Truth album. And I said that because they each covered You Shook Me. Uh -huh. um, but I was really kind of saying this just to be hyperbolic about it, to kind of create a name for myself and exaggerate. You know, I really, I love Zeppelin, you know. Um, and and I realized that John Paul Jones had read this after we had this conversation. I think he'd asked me, go, well, you know, we never really trusted the press. And I said, man, I said, I would never write anything that would ever hurt you guys or insult you. He read this after I had interviewed him. And my brother said, you better be careful because one of these days the guy's going to read what you've written about him. Like, oh, no, Mick, they're never going to read it, you know. And he's sitting there and he is curious. And I thought, you know, I thought he was going to start swinging, which didn't scare me too much because John Paul Jones wasn't a very big guy. I could have defended <laughs> myself. But then his bouncer is standing next to him. And so he said, fuck you. You're not doing any interviews. Give me all of the tapes. So I thought, well, my God, what am I going to do? Not give him the tapes standing there on their start, their private plane with bouncers and everybody looking at me. So I hand him over all the interview tapes I've done with him and Jimmy Page. And um, I was supposed to stay several more days. And um, uh, so I got back to the hotel. Janine Safer, the publicist I'd mentioned earlier, saw this whole thing unfold. I said, Janine, I, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm so embarrassed. I, I, I can't even find the words. I, I, I go, you know, it, it was nothing personal. I, 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 I meant nothing by that paragraph in, the, in that story. It happened four years ago. I, I don't even know what to do. I says, I, I've got to get out of here because now these guys are gunning for me. They're not going to give me any more interviews. You know, she said, go apologize to John Paul Jones. I said, I, I can't. I can't do that. She said, go apologize to him. So I, I went back to his hotel. This is about three in the morning, right? So we're back in the hotel. I knock on the door and he comes to the door. I, I can't even find the words, John, to, to, to apologize to you. I, I didn't mean anything that I wrote in that story. It happened so long ago. I love what you do. I love the band. I have nothing but the greatest respect for you. And I'm so sorry that happened. And he said, well, I still think you're a fucking asshole, but you've got a job to do. Here's, here are your tapes back. <laughs> oh, man. He made you squirm, though, for a while. Oh, my God. I could not believe it, you know. So. Time goes by, I write this story, and um, uh, it, it wasn't anywhere near what I wanted to get out of Jimmy Page. It was a good story, you know? Uh, it was good, it, it just wasn't what I was hoping. And the, the feature on John Paul Jones was really good. It was a major feature. Fast forward um, a couple months, Detective, which is uh, one of the bands that, that uh, uh, Zeppelin signed to Swan Song, their label, is playing at the Starwood. I'm there because I'm a huge Michael Monarch fan, who is the guitar player in Steppenwolf. I love Michael Monarch playing. I'm there with my brother. We're upstairs at, at, a, at a, a VIP, they call it the VIP lounge. And um, again, my back uh, is to the other tables. And Mick, I've told my brother the story. And Mick says, John Paul Jones is sitting over there. I go, oh, yeah, that's funny, Mick. That's really funny. And he goes, John Paul Jones is walking over here. And I, I'm still thinking my brother is joking, you know, and I feel it's out from my shoulder. And I turn around and it's John Paul Jones 
And before I can say anything, he extends his hand. He goes, I'm sorry I did that. I am so sorry. I could never have done that. I read your story. Your story was really good. I mean, my God, this guy, for him to say those things to me. So you talk about a nightmare. So beyond being embarrassed and insulted by the biggest freaking band in the world, uh, yeah. I, I honestly thought that if I tell guitar player what I did, they're never going to let me get within 100 feet of another guitar player. You, you know, I really thought that my career could have ended. Um, I mean, had he kept the tapes, it would have been all over. They right. would have never allowed me to do anything. You know, could have that have, uh, you know, done the domino effect for other magazines? Certainly could have, because guitar player at the time, man, they, they carried a lot of weight. Um, but, I, you know, again, I was so embarrassed. I thought, I'll never live that down. You know, guitar players going to hear about it. But to, to guitar players' credit, man, they came to my rescue. They said, wow, they should never have done that, man. We're going to write letters to the management. I said, no, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But they had my back. And they were really happy with, with that story, you know. That story, more than any other story that I wrote for Guitar Player, and I wrote a lot, I wrote 16 cover stories for them, has gotten more response than any other story I've ever written. So wow. yeah, that was a nightmare. I mean, it, it now <laughs> results in a remarkable story to tell everybody, but I'm standing there, and I can feel it, you know, standing, standing there on the plane. You know, I thought, that's it. My my life as a music as a journalist, as a rock guitar journalist is over. I just more so being insulted by John Paul Jones. It's like oh my god, it, it was horrible. But um, yeah, there's a couple other nightmares I I, I could uh, I could regale you with. But that uh, I thought that was a pretty good that one. That right? is yeah, that's an amazing story. Um, well, you have a lot of stories too on your YouTube channel. Um, so can you talk a little bit about where's the best place for fans to find and follow you online? I know you're on Instagram, but what are, what is the name of your YouTube and your Instagram and your website? Uh, I think if you just type in um, Steve Rosen at Steve Rosen Interviews, uh -huh. uh, you can find it. The Instagram page is um, at steve.rosen.guitar.pix. Uh, and if anybody collects collectible guitar picks, uh, you can come check me out on uh, on eBay. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's some stuff out there. And and if you're interested, also on on my website, which is where you can also find the book. Um, uh, there's some really cool pictures and a bunch of YouTube stuff and uh, a bunch of photos of me and rock and roll. Yes, uh, that's really time. fun. So once you yeah, once we've read the book there's even more to dive into and uh well thank you steve for being on the show it was really great getting more insight into how this amazing book was created oh thank you so much Stacey. and i did want to say um uh, in closing that um and we talked about safety i was a monster ventures fan and what your dad did was unbelievable and i think maybe he had the greatest gig in the whole world being in a surf instrumental band playing guitar and Listening he to sure did. And, 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 I mean, yeah. my God, I, I could I still remember that, you know, hearing Walk, Don't Run and all that stuff. So, uh, uh, you know, that was a huge part of, you know, who I became, um, you know, I, I believe on some level. So that's fantastic. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Stacey. All right. 
This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Where she's by.